Hi, and welcome to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we invite various interesting people on to talk about their niche area of interest that they could just talk forever about. Here are your hosts. I'm Ali. And I'm Nigel. And today we have Julia. How are you? Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, Thank you for being on. Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you. And yourselves? Doing well. How are you? Get in there. (laughs) (laughs) Pass the January. Yeah, it's January when we're recording this, so... Um, and tell us, what are you here to talk to us about today? Um, I was going to talk a little bit about documentary filmmaking. That's my sort of specialism that I got into after finishing my undergrad. Um, and yeah, I kind of actually ended up meeting Nigel in the middle of shooting one of my most recent projects. So it seemed kind of fitting that that would be what I talked about today. Yeah, that was, that was a very strange experience because I was like, <laughs> very much in the way uh very much in the way but also like trying not to be uh i don't even know i don't even remember what exactly you were taking the shots of the the common room was like was for specifically but i was just like i think i might be in the way and that's how the conversation started yeah it was such a funny encounter and that's kind of um almost been the the general process for for sourcing the stories for this particular project. It's all been really chance encounters with people. Um, but the, I, I kind of ended up meeting you about five in the morning, probably in this hostel. It was definitely still dark, yeah. the, sun, the sun had not rose. And I was just taking shots in that, um, it's a common room, but it's a music room with a, a big grand piano. And uh, previously, maybe like two weeks before that, um, I had met a, a man in that same hostel and he was only in the hostel because someone had stolen his tent and like camping facilities uh, from Arthur's seat where he had basically been living for about four months. Um, but he, but he, I say living, he, he also had a house, like he owned, mm. I think he had an apartment in Glasgow and that's where he was born and bred. But he just said he needed to do something that kind of you know gave him a little bit more self-confidence again and so he basically just like bought a tent and then just set up camp on Arthur's seat and then was like there for four months um, before (laughs) someone took his tent Um, so I ended up having uh, a conversation with him in in that common room where we met and he was a really talented pianist and so he just started playing the piano and we had a really nice like casual kind of back and forth about um music and also just like his experience um with with the tent and like why he decided to sleep outside and um yeah and that that's one of the um the stories that is being integrated into this current documentary which is on under similar sort of thing uh, themes with um why people uh, there there are a few stories of, of people who um either live off grid or they you know they um have they sleep outdoors um on occasion and there's uh, they but they use it as like a coping mechanism or a grounding um exercise to try and you know manage their mental health it's uh yeah that's sort of a underlying theme of one of the some of the stories. I think that's a big difference between people in Eurocentric countries and people in America. Just from observation, where it's like if you uh, go and live off grid, 
in like the UK countryside or in the French countryside or whatever. It's very much like a return to nature and focus on yourself well-being thing. Whereas if you go and live off the grid in America, you're probably like some kind of crank who's afraid of uh, like CIA spooks and stuff. It's this weird cultural difference. <laughs> like I was right. listening to uh, uh, this podcast was explaining about this massive satellite dead zone that's in somewhere in America. Uh, because they have a big space um, like receiver dish to pick up signals from outer space there, mm. but it's that sensitive that there's no electronics allowed um, around, like for miles around. So then everyone goes and lives in this kind of dead zone. But it's it's a distinctly different thing to going and living in the countryside over here. Yeah, I definitely noticed that because I, I lived in Canada for a few years so the contrast between the how widely accepted it is to live in your vehicle or like sleep in a tent um you know live out of a tent over there you can kind of I mean there's obviously like different communities and different areas but in some of the areas that I was in in Canada it was like almost completely acceptable to be camping that way and like also you know going and doing like a nine to five at the same time whereas if you do that mm. here it, you know set up camp in a in a park or you know a national um national park or something it's a little bit less widely maybe not accepted but i think there's definitely a certain standard that people would yeah it's not looked favor favorably on let's yeah. say yeah yeah, and but there's, funnily enough, there's just, I, I ended up bumping into quite a few people that had stories about people who, I think for the most part, they were trying to cope with something, or they did just prefer to live out, live outside, like they preferred being close to nature. Um, but there was mm. another story about a man who, um, I think, so I met the, the, the woman who told me the story, I met her in the Peak District, so, but she was from Manchester, and she said that, um, this was a, a veteran um, or ex, you know, ex-army and he had been trying to be housed um, I think through his daughter, his daughter was trying to find him housing and um, eventually I think he'd been camping on the moors in like you know in protests and you know to kind of make a point to the local council and then eventually he was housed and I think he was, was there for about six six months and then he just decided he didn't want to live in a house anymore and he moved back out onto the moors. So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Mm. It's quite, it, it, yeah. I, I also wonder whether it's becoming a little bit more, um, more of a not, not a goal necessarily, but I think the the pandemic and the um, the forced pressure of having to stay indoors has definitely made it more of a a goal for a lot of people to try and you know get outside and like go camping or whatever it is that. That keeps them saying you know yeah I feel like that's yeah i feel like that's true because we can't really especially in the when we're in if we're, we're in the height of lockdown like we can't really like go anywhere we can a lot of places aren't open and stuff so what else do you have to do only to kind of maybe go for a walk or go camping somewhere like to go and kind of be with nature it's a real way to kind of reconnect with the outside world without putting too many people at risk yeah, mm. and a, and another um, like really valid point that um, one of my off-grid contributors was saying is that ultimately his lifestyle is also it has reduced his carbon footprint 
so much in comparison to how it was when he was living in a house and mm. and I think that's also like a huge selling point for people who want to try and you know they, they can't necessarily change things on a on like a big scale but or in, from an individual basis if you want to be a little bit more environmentally friendly that's another like really you know mm. selling point for people yeah so you mentioned that these stories all factor into this project that you're working on this documentary film and I suppose then you know like it seems kind of obvious but I know what it's about and I've kind of briefed Ali about it but maybe for the people at home um would you care to explain what exactly the project is that you're yeah. working on yeah so um the kind of genesis of the the project it started the summer of just after the pandemic kind of like slowed down in the summer um this is about 20 what is it 2020 um mm -hmm. and oh god the like, pandemic has destroyed everyone's senses of time <laughs> yeah, yeah i know um uh so my mother works for the church um in salisbury which is uh, my hometown and by the time i'd moved home um like a lot of other people when they you know lost lost jobs at the start of the pandemic and um we had a phone call from her just saying that someone had turned up to the church um and they needed like a hot meal and conversation and this man um came and stayed with us um and he basically on the first day that he was with us, he kind of spoke to us a lot about um, the experiences that he'd been through with losing loved ones, um, like his really hard difficulty with grief. Um, he had PTSD, which um, he had from serving in the army. Um, and all of those experiences had kind of led him to um, alcohol addiction and um living um outside and on the move um he he's he spoke quite a lot about nature and the outdoors and that being like a really big grounding force for him um but he had to you know he said quite a lot like he had to be walking about 20 20 miles a day in order to manage his mental health um and like abrasive flashbacks from experiences he'd been through um and i think that's quite a common theme for a lot of veterans like being outside is like that's um why quite a lot of the homeless community is um filled with veterans it's that you know they're all going through quite similar experiences um and he ended up staying with us for about five days um you know just sharing conversation and he cooked like dinner for us and things like that um he was from scotland and um, we don't know exactly where from but he um we had a neighbor who identified his um accent as glaswegian and um on the last night that he stayed with us, um, we asked him, how long do you think it would take if you were to walk from like here in Salisbury up to where you're from in Scotland? Um, and he said, I would probably like give or take a few weeks if he was, you know, walking, starting at like 5 a.m. every day and doing 20, 20 plus miles. Yeah. And, um, on the fifth morning, um, he disappeared and um, he'd taken our dog with him. And... Oh. Basically, over the course of about six weeks, um, my my family put out a lot of social media, um, you know, posts in order to try and find them both. And yeah. I think over the course of that time, we were a lot of people kind of made us feel like 
he'd probably just sold the dog um you know whatever you know kind of just putting you in um yeah just made us feel like you know we'd been scammed or something um mm. but after six weeks they were both still found in each other's company they were just i think 150 miles away somewhere in kent um and i started I, after having those conversations with the man i decided i would start the walk that we had spoke spoken to him about um and see if i could raise a bit of awareness about the kind of experiences he'd been through um just through the people that i met on the walk um and that's why the project's called gone to see a man about a dog um mm. and and ultimately uh, most all of the themes um within the um with every single story so far is is mental health and um each person touches on a subject that he spoke with us about so one of my stories uh, covers addiction another covers um uh, suicide like losing loved ones um and another covers um relationship with animals like you know uh, and then obviously i've spoken to you about the other the other stories that I've found where people have chosen to live outside um, and what it's done for them. So, yeah, that's kind of like the, the project. So did you encounter like many people? Was it, I, I suppose it's nearly not a question because there's not really an answer to it, uh, to ask like how many interesting people are there in the world? Because I think everyone is interesting. <laughs> and I think that's the yeah. idea that uh, underpins both gone to see a man about a dog and this podcast i think you know like that everyone has something interesting to say but what was it like physically walking up and down you know britain and meeting these people because I, I fantasized about walking from where i live in westmeath up to dublin uh instead of taking the train and it's like i think a 16 hour walk but britain is infinitely larger than ireland is so <laughs> like this is true <laughs> yeah it um, seems like an altogether grander thing to set out upon um so i mean i loved it it was definitely like an experience that's been totally invaluable and um like i said i lived in canada so i did do a lot of hiking and um and camping there so um i, I it's something that i really really enjoyed anyway but i definitely agree with you that everyone is incredibly interesting um and i think some people forget that um i think it's quite easy to forget that like the person who's selling you your groceries actually has like a story to tell um just because you haven't you know asked the right questions doesn't mean that that, that person you know and those experiences aren't there um one you know the off-grid contributor for instance um and this is something that happened really frequently is like I, I was quite bad at map reading for the first section. So I did it in two different sections. I did two six weeks of walking. Uh, one was in 2020 and then one was this year. Um, and the one last, last year, year I, sorry? Or last year now, because we're in 20, or what, 2020, 2021 or? Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, so one was- No, sorry, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, sorry, um, I'm, just, I'm just reminding myself that we are in 2022. Yeah. Um, um uh, what was i saying oh uh, yeah so i would uh, pretty much i'd never like planned where i was going to go i'd kind of just decide on the day 
where I was going to go. And that was sort of part parcel of trying to research um, and really be in the shoes of someone who doesn't know where they're going to sleep at night mm -hmm. um, or, or where they're going to get their food or water from. So that those were kind of like, um, like the criteria I sort of set myself like to be to be able to put, really put myself in really put myself in the shoes of um, this other person um, and so in doing this I also kind of let, left everything up to, to chance but also um, I asked people for the places or people to go visit um, and when I met the off-grid contributor I had actually taken a completely wrong direction and I was going down towards a dead end but I didn't know it was a dead end until I got there um, and it was a like a castle just off the Y um, valley and I got there and then obviously the people who were just about to open up who were um, employees there said you know you can't go through there you know it's a dead end mm -hmm. and I just instead of getting super frustrated because <laughs> I knew I was going to have to go <laughs> like probably like an hour or so walking back the way I came in order to like loop back round um onto the onto the right trail I said oh, okay I'm just gonna have breakfast here and as I was like setting up like breakfast stuff um Alex came out um and his his employee had said like what I was doing and he just came out and he just started talking and if you know you part you there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people that will be passing through um that particular gift shop that he was working in at the time um and and they they, they would just never know that he had, just has the most interesting like one of the most interesting stories um and i i kind of tried to look at experiences that set me off course or you know i'd had a really bad day or like i'd you know things that felt like setbacks at the time more often than not they ended up leading me to people that actually had amazing stories which was quite a nice sort of like um way to end those experiences and I think it says a lot about you know just kind of pushing on mm. and just trusting the yeah. process of um you know you're meant to be there at the right time um yeah. there, there was that nearly oh sorry. oh sorry oh no no you go uh, I was just gonna say I'd say that is nearly something which would reaffirm your faith in humanity if you know the whole feeling like you've just experienced this massive setback and not knowing where you're going and then encountering nearly like a windfall, this amazing uh, person with an incredible story, you know, and the fact that you can find them anywhere. I feel that would be very reaffirming, at least to me anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There was, um, there's another example. Unfortunately, I, there was never never a follow-up with this individual, uh, which is fine, and perhaps like their story just wasn't meant to be in it. Um, mm. but I had interviewed a woman in Bristol who was a social worker at the time, um, and she was very much a, like an, a, a wild swimming advocate um, for recovery, and she had put me in contact with someone that she knew that was um, further up in Sheffield, and she told me to just contact them when I got closer towards that area. And I took a, took his details and then said, yeah, no problem, I will do. And then I got to, eventually got to the Midlands and um, just looked him up and was looking at his photographs thinking, 
this, this guy looks really familiar. Like, why do, why do I feel like I know this guy? Even though, I'd, you know, I didn't think I'd ever met him before. And then I looked back at an interview that I did in the Y Valley with um, another really well-known world swimmer um, who's had a lot of coverage with like Guardian and BBC. And I was interviewing her and then she suddenly goes, oh, and a wild swimmer's just popped up. And then I turn the camera around to this person who's swimming past us. And it's the guy that I was told to go see in Sheffield. And he's literally no swimming way. past us in the river in Wales. And then and then this guy <laughs> and this other swimmer have a back and forth. And they're like, you know, how's the water? And he's like, oh, it's lovely. And then he asked, <laughs> he asked, he asked me, oh, what's the film about? And then she said, oh, it's a film about mental health. And then and then I turn the camera back around to her and then just totally ignore him. And I'm like, I was pin I was literally kicking myself. I was like, I should have spoken to that man. But um, mm. yeah, there we go. I tried to um, really discreetly send him this clip and and say, is this you? And I have I just got ghosted, unfortunately, which which happens. It's fine. Um, it happens. But. Yeah. Yeah, it was such a bizarre encounter and also, again, reaffirming, like, you know, I ended up being at the right place at the right time. Um, yeah, lots of lots of very interesting uh, encounters like that. Hmm. How did you get into documentary making? Um, so I studied uh, graphic design um, and but I'd always had a huge interest in film and I kind of got I did I did a foundation course um, before my undergrad but um, I kind of got pushed into doing um, graphics um, just because it was a little bit broader I guess and then in my final year I decided I wanted to make a film and um, I think for anyone who's not like studied film I think always taking on a project that perhaps is like has a lot of like creative um you know uh, creative rain um is a is a really good starting opportunity so I actually reached out to a contact who had just set up um they'd, they'd open a, a surf hostel in Costa Rica and um I asked if they needed a film because they weren't you know they hadn't even got like Instagram or marketing or anything set up yet and I went out having kind of jumped through a lot of hoops with uh, the uni department uh, for film uh, to let me hire out some kit and I basically I, re I researched everything myself uh, which is what a lot of um, you know filmmakers do at the moment I think you know a lot of people do just teach themselves how to use everything um and and then I went out and then I, I kind of made like a, a short semi uh, documentary and semi light surf film and that was kind of like my intro um into filmmaking um and it just kind of really like I don't know set this um I don't want to say set this passion like so I, that's a horrible phrase but um <laughs> just like I don't know it just kind of switched on this something in me that was just I didn't know I just haven't really gone back since um like I do a lot of uh, graphic design work on the side to sometimes supplement doing passion projects but um after that I did a, I did a master's and then um during I think it was my second semester I directed and shot a, another documentary and 
That one was so much fun as well. That was um, with a woman that was um, actually she'd been a midwife for 30 years and she was coming up to like her last sort of year of working and she was about to retire. Um, but she was also a world uh, championship belly boarder, um, which oh. if I don't know if either of you know what belly boarding is, but it basically it kind of predates surfing. Um, and they basically just used to um, kind of body surf, but with these like wooden planks, they look like really long. Um, they're kind of like snowboard sort of size, um, but they're made out of planks. That they're basically like made out of wood. Um, yes. And back in um, like fifties and sixties, they used to like paint them all different kinds of colors and stuff. And hers was, I think her favorite one was like red and white stripes and every everything in her house also was like red and white stripes. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that documentary ended up uh, doing all right. It like circulated around like a few festivals in um, the UK, and then also was um, shortlisted for a Grayson um, Award, which is like the National um, British Documentary uh, Annual Award. Um, well done. They do them. Yeah. Well done. Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that was also yeah another exciting opportunity and um and then since then I've just kind of I'd say I do a lot of my my work like independently like I'm, I'm an independent filmmaker but I try and collaborate with organizations or um other filmmakers to yeah just to make whatever it is that feels like the most not necessarily the most interesting character but I think um I think I think my work is starting to shift a little bit. It's becoming a little bit more social impact um, focused, um, and trying to yeah talk about subjects that are a little bit more difficult to to, to unpack. But um, that's become a little bit more valuable to me than making surf films. I think so. Yeah. Do you think so when you're? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, uh, No, no, you go ahead. Ah. Uh, uh, do you think that documentary filmmaking is uniquely equipped to deal with these things? I was, like, I haven't seen an awful lot of documentaries. I've seen a few um, Theroux ones, but it's not something that I necessarily watch a lot of. It doesn't come up. But, you know, especially with all of the crises we're facing in today's modern world, do you think that, like, documentary filmmaking is of benefit in raising awareness or like trying to help solve or even not even solve maybe just remedy uh some of these social issues yes that's i mean i'd, I'd like to hope so if it doesn't that would be unfortunate but yeah I, I, <laughs> I might might think about a career change. <laughs> um but yeah i definitely i definitely think so um and i feel like particularly I would say that you should be really cautious about watching a documentary that is claiming to fix a problem. Um, I think if I was to set out with the intention of like fixing a problem with this particular project, I think I would have ended up in like a really bad existential crisis. <laughs> um, yeah, because ultimately, like some pro problems that you can't necessarily fix, but you can provide platforms for for people who've been through those experiences and hopefully you know an audience member might 
resonate with with that particular experience and possibly implement something in their own life that allows them to change something that they're going through as well so I think it really does depend on um, the topic I mean you get so many different different documentaries and I think that's kind of why I'm interested in it is because it's you don't have to like necessarily go down one like you know genre if you don't want to like if you know unless you're mm. making natural history documentary that's probably what you're going to be making for the rest of your life you know but if if you're like me and you you like the flexibility of being able to touch on lots of different subjects you can kind of bring to light whatever it is that um you're you're passionate about or you know if i think a lot of the time as well if you find people that are passionate about a subject and i mean you probably find this with your with your podcast as well is that you kind of hope that other people will also be interested in that even if they they've never necessarily like heard of that thing before mm. um mm. it doesn't mean that they're not going to be interested in in hearing about it especially if that the person who's speaking is particularly you know well versed in that subject um so yeah i don't know if that answers your question at all but i i do i definitely do think that documentary does have the power to change um a lot of different um, areas and I think one one aspect of um, the process for development uh, when you are making a documentary is also to maybe consider um, like the social impact of that film that you're making whether um, whether it's you know if you there's it's one thing to you know raise um, awareness about a subject but if you can use that film to generate um, donations for a cause or if you can use it to encourage people to uh, contribute to a cause in some way like voluntary work or you know if you, if it has some kind of call to action that makes someone urgently want to you know uh, contribute in in a valuable way then I think that also is, is something that every filmmaker should be really um, and trying to implement into into their their process um mm. i think yeah. it's particularly with um and this is something that i've had to contend with as well with um certain projects where when you're um writing up a brief for the project that you want to write you have to ask yourself a lot of questions about like for instance why i'm am i the right person to be making this film and if so why am i the right person to make, be making this film if you're a filmmaker and you want to change or not necessarily change um a circumstance but or but but you perhaps you want to help a community how can you help that community after the film has been produced i think that's something worth considering um so yeah. for instance for this particular project i'm wanting to do q a's with um those organizations that i've met along the walk um so that's like a long-term kind of plan and then that gives the community an opportunity to kind of meet those organizations and perhaps get involved in some way so there's yeah different steps that you can kind of yeah and, yeah implement if that does that make any sense okay. no that 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 that, that does make sense it's like because like awareness is one thing and like awareness is a good place to start but like at a certain point for anything whether that's like with documentary making activism like 
which can go hand in hand occasionally, but like, it's like, okay, we're aware of the thing now. We're aware that this happens. What are we going to do about it? Because awareness is kind of a starting point, like, and, but if you can actually make some kind of difference, make some contribution, doesn't matter how big or small it is, like, it's something. Yeah, definitely. And that isn't to say that films that are, have just been made for the purpose of raising awareness aren't valuable either. Um, oh, yeah, of course. I, I def- I, obviously, there's, you know, um, a place for, for every type of film. Um, and yeah. I, I'm, I've always been really passionate about um, portraits. Like, that's kind of my specialism, I guess. Like, uh, you know, people... Uh, I, I try and work with beneficiaries or you know um, contributors and gain their trust and about their story as much as as possible. Because um, if you, if per so if one of my projects at the moment, um, for example, is um, and it's the one that I was saying to you earlier that we're trying to write a bid for is um, uh, hopefully a collaboration with um, a network of um, charities in, in Wiltshire and. Um, we were just discussing it today and I just said, you know, story-led um, documentaries or, you know, even if they are corporate films, if they're, if you hear it directly from beneficiaries, it, they, t- they tend to have a much higher engagement than something mm-hmm. that is like corporate or, you know, a little bit more about statistics and things like that, which feels can often feel a little bit drier. So, um yeah, you kind of yeah. need to find some way to connect with people and um, yeah, stories yeah. can be the way to do that. I think one of the th- uh, one of the things that, and you're probably more acutely aware of this, but it's definitely what I've picked up from, from ads and stuff. Uh, and you were talking about like being aware of the negative impacts. It's like, I think exploitation is a big thing. Yeah. That, like, because, you know, it's especially with, with true crime, because on the radio, mm-hmm. like when we were in work, there's all like the radio is constantly on and every news presenter seems to have a podcast now, which is just the news again. But there's always these <laughs> true crime podcasts where they're like, we're going to get to the heart of this and find out why, <laughs> like, you know, these murders mm. happened at Christmas time, which was like a big case in Ireland. And like, they're not doing anything to benefit, uh, you know, the people that the the victims are survived by it's purely for their own gain it's you know this is why i'm always leery of true crime or serial killer stuff because it feels very exploitative especially when people affected are still alive yeah no yeah well, like the... sorry yeah, no go ahead sorry <laughs> no you go ahead sorry <laughs> um, I was just going to say it reminded me of a documentary series on Netflix um, I can't remember the title of it but they basically interviewed and you could tell it was definitely in the Bible Belt of America um, just because of like the the conclusion for every single story um, mm-hmm. but it was a really uncomfortable watch and I, I think I only got a few episodes in but every episode was a different um person that was uh i think they're on death row and um you hear first of all you hear the the testimony of the the convict you know the person who who, who did whatever it was that they're in, in um, death row for and then you hear um either what actually happened or you hear it from like you know the family the family members 
and so you have them either side uh, but as if that wasn't bad enough you then have um <laughs> you have i think they give the the convict an, an ipad and then they have to watch the story or the testimony from the family that then contradicts something that that person has said um and it, it is, it's a really really horrible series and i i it it frustrates me that stuff like that is the it's the stuff that people do end up watching and that's why it's been funded and mm. bought by netflix um and and there is a huge like you know true true crime is like a huge genre on netflix and probably a few di- different other platforms but um yeah and that there is there is a place for it certainly but i think there are some circumstances where it, it is just you know where's where's the line for exploiting like your contributors um especially when they're already in like a position where they don't necessarily have another choice you know so yeah yeah. it's like there was a sky documentary last summer on a murder that happened quite a while a murder that happened in the 90s in west cork this Um, is the sophie tuscan de plantier yes Uh, yes it is like i'm not going to like offer an opinion on like what I think happened one way or the other because that's not my place but like um I didn't see the full documentary now to give it like some kind of credit but I felt like it kind of focused a bit too much on the like really the main and only suspect that they have at the moment and like at a certain point you kind of have to think like okay like that's what this guy is like and like whatever but like she had like she had a family too like you know like i and there's still been no justice for it i just don't think that something like this is really constructive or appropriate yeah yeah no definitely mm. it's it's definitely the type of i mean i mean i've I'm, I'm i would say i'm still like in the early stages of my career but it's definitely an aspect that if there are is anyone who does listen to this is if they're trying to get into to documentary filmmaking they should be really aware aware of um the concept like the implications of um their filmmaking and not just i think also just being aware of like um not just the outcome and and the impact of like the outcome on that on that contributor watching the story back but also in the process of asking people certain questions and i don't know if you've ever had this on on your podcast but um I, I, it was kind of put into context um, by a social worker a few years ago who was, um, I think she was predominantly working with refugees, but she mm-hmm. made it a really good, valid point that if um, if and when you do ask people who've been through a really traumatic experience um, certain questions about that experience, you have to realise that you are actually re-traumatising that person. Um, like, yeah. And- you can either you know take advantage of that or you can try and work with them and make sure you're always safeguarding them and yourself and making sure that they're comfortable with you asking those questions i think you have to build a huge amount of trust in order for people to to open up and share certain stories um and that is also a huge part of like the the initial developing stages of of making a documentary and I, I find it really difficult to watch some some documentaries where you know that 
that process was neglected or, or that just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That's sort of <laughs> no, uh, I can safely say we haven't uh, we haven't re-traumatized anyone on the podcast. We have <laughs> we have had a guest describe the experience as therapeutic, though. So yeah, uh, I think I think that's how a few people have described um, this project on being on the other side of um, like the lens. Um, I think uh, it was something I kind of noticed with some people that opened up but then I asked them if they wanted to participate and then they said no which obviously you know everyone's entitled to say that but I didn't really spend that much time with them before they did open up their entire life story um and I think that was something I don't know if it's necessarily something to do with um the perhaps like the perception of like a burden that some people feel like they're putting on to friends and family if they've heard the same story over and over and then mm-hmm. and then suddenly they come across a you know a stranger and that stranger want you know wants to listen or that you know that opportunity is there then suddenly it's much easier for that person to open up um so i guess in in that way it can be a really therapeutic experience you're definitely right um and i hope that i'm not you know re-traumatizing all of my contributors as well like i try and work really hard to make sure that it doesn't happen um but yeah, yeah. aside uh, from oh sorry were you gonna no, say no 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 there you go um i was going to ask aside from ethical quandaries and deciding whether the documentary you end up making is you know morally right to make whether you know whether you have that uh like bulwark um are there other things that you need to take into consideration, either from things that could go wrong or just from a preparation stage that you think are like integral to making a documentary? Um, I would say that every single project I've made has been really different from the last. I think sometimes you don't necessarily have that much control over all of the aspects of a project and i think that's sort of like the joys of doing documentary but also there are you know that you do get some limitations um i think uh, the thing i really like about the way that documentary is sort of developing is that you can also you can find stories in really different ways so you don't have to find someone just by you know meeting them in person you can out you know you can put a post up and see who can't you know see who responds um and you can do all of your interviews solely over the phone if you wanted to mm-hmm. um, yeah. or, or through voice notes so that's initially how this project began and then gradually as i met more people it became more of an observational doc um i think you need to do all the really obvious things like risk risk assessments and stuff um and particularly with like covid that just you know it does like obviously make things significantly harder for face-to-face filming um um i think maybe yeah i don't know i i think you're kind of 
learn as you go. That's kind of how I've done it. Um, I did do my master's obviously, which is, it was just a year of kind of like, you know, working on different projects. But I think ultimately you'll figure out the kind of um, filmmaker that you are just by, just by giving it a go. And I, I, the best advice I had from someone was just make films about things that you're interested in um, or with people that you find interesting and gradually you'll start to like you know get more practice in I think practice is you know not underrated but you should like definitely just 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 make you know it doesn't have to be like a big 10 minute documentary you know your first one it can just be like a two minute one minute piece or even 30 seconds like it doesn't have to be very long um just I think just use the resources that you have um I also think I maybe used to get quite caught up on equipment. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people that have still done, inc made incredibly successful documentaries just shooting on their iPhone and the standard of and mm -hmm. quality of like, iPhone cameras are, you know, significantly better than they were when I was a teenager. So just because you don't necessarily have, um, like a 4K camera or whatever doesn't mean that you can't still shoot something that's really um, valuable. So um, that's another thing. And also also just a really good starting point if that is way, the kind of direction you want to go in. Um, and if you do want to work with um, better equipment, then it's always worth putting feelers out on, um, the, like there are Facebook groups and things like that with um, like students who might want to also make a, a documentary and they're looking for projects to take on. So I think as long as you're net networking is a, like a huge, huge um, and integral part of the film and television industry. So um, if you're, you know, building your client base or building a like a crew network, then that's that's also really yeah, good good way to kind of kick, kick off a career. So um, yeah. When you start making a documentary, when you start on a new project, I would imagine you kind of start out with then maybe a bit of an idea of like, you know, like what it's going to be. Do, does that idea change as you keep making it? Because I can imagine with all the like um, different stories you hear, like things like how does that like, how does like what you think the what you think the project is going to be? Does the end product end up looking maybe a bit different or? Yeah, definitely. I think that happens for that's happened for quite a lot of my my projects but I think I think it's you know it's not like um I mean you can make documentaries that are dramatized and they also work really well like hybrids where you've got um you know the audio is uh real real recordings of um like contributors and then like everything over the top is um scripted drama um so yeah and in there's those... a good one I watched, which I like. I don't care about sports, but the way it was done, it was the finding. It was finding Jack Charlton about the guy who managed the Irish football team, and I don't care about mm. sports, but it was really well done. But like you said, yeah, it was quite well um, scripted with like archive uh, footage and narration intermingled. But yeah, yeah. yeah so so there's um, a lot of scope. You can. Write a script if you want to do, if 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 that will help your your process. Um, and I think a lot of people would say that writing a script is kind of integral to the development of a project, even if you you don't necessarily 
know what your contributor is going to say. Um, but yeah, it really does depend on like the style that you're going for. With the scripted drama, uh, like hybrids, you have a lot um, more control over the the end result. And um, if you know, so so you can kind of anticipate what it's gonna look and feel like by the end. Um, mm. I do storyboard and I I'm very visual, so I I have to make like a lot of mood boards for just getting like a general um aesthetic for for how i'd like everything to look and feel and try and i'm trying to move into a more like cinematic um style of uh documentary filmmaking uh just because i've it's just i i watch a lot of cinematic documentaries and they they tend to resonate um a little bit more they, i find them quite a little bit more engaging um but yeah it just it i guess it just depends like for this particular project um it definitely looks totally different because I, I speaking about the the doc hybrids um that's kind of how i envisioned this documentary um becoming because at the time i was trying to almost abide by like covid restrictions and that i didn't want to be breaching any you know social distancing um rules so mm-hmm. I, I did just swap details with people and then did a lot of phone interviews that i recorded and then I did want to have a scripted drama over the top, but then um, this year, last year, when I um, continued the project after like stopping for the winter, I ended up um, just completely changing, just because I I spent more time with those those people, and um, it just felt a little bit, it, yeah, it was one of those projects that just grew really organically. So um, yeah, just kind of, I, it also just depends on your your time frame as well and um the resources that you have like how your budget and stuff so yeah i guess every every doc will be really different but as if you can put enough um yeah effort into like the kind of the starting starting points that i was sort of talking about in terms of like doing risk assessment and those mood boards and storyboarding you can kind of have a little bit more control over the process even if the even if the stories and the process almost becomes um improvised in a lot of, lot of ways and you have to go by contributor sc- schedules and um what they want to show you and and how they want to tell their story so yeah it's quite varied really yeah and in terms of just sheer creative process like when you've made a number of documentaries or anything really, but documentaries in your case, like, does it become more or less easy, do you think, to accept, like, how things are going to change? Or, you know, like, do you try and cling to your original vision uh, as much as possible? Um, I think that's a really funny question, because I'm, it's funny because I wouldn't really call myself a perfectionist but I've I do really struggle with like um I don't know I think you definitely need to adapt with with documentary and also depends if you're going to be shooting directing and editing everything yourself like I do for a lot of mine um or if you're going to be working with an editor um I'm now getting to a point where I want to outsource the rest of the editing to someone else because I feel like I've got to a certain point where I can only see it so 
not that I can only see like the project so much, but I, I can only see so far. Um, Whereas mm. getting other eyes onto projects can be really beneficial in terms of helping it progress. And um, there will be people sure. who look at certain shots or certain stories and they'll go, oh, we definitely need to like have that in there and you can totally just get rid of like, you know, a five minute chunk or whatever of this other person. So um, having an objective uh, viewpoint um, and also perhaps, and I maybe need to take my own advice on this as well, but um, <laughs> just accepting critique from other people as constructive and not, you know, they're not trying to, mm. they're not trying to bash you down and like tell you to stomp on your dreams and tell you like, don't do it. They're just trying to help you, you know, progress, progress it and, and get you out of like a creative block. So definitely, definitely working with other people is like, it's crucial to like my process anyway. Yeah, that seems to be a recurring theme with um, creatives we interview, especially uh, songwriters when we interviewed Connor Kinsler on his process uh, for songwriting because he was originally like a solo singer or solo singer songwriter and is now part of a band. So he was saying that basically like one of the hardest things is like accepting that other people have opinions in terms of like how things are made collaboratively. Mm. And it's definitely like this, it, it's definitely this, uh, or at least a similar thing with writing where you've written a, an essay or a piece or like a short story. And I'm very, I don't handle edits very well. My mentality <laughs> is that like, I've written this thing and this is how it should be. And then someone may have a legitimate like thing where like, it would work better if it's like this. And I'm like, but no, this, that's not how I've written it. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm definitely, it's tricky, especially when it's like, it's an extension of yourself. And I think um, yeah. that's like yeah. pretty much like anyone who's ever made anything will understand that like, this thing isn't just like an end product. It's also like an extension of you and your abilities and and when someone comes in and tries to correct it, it's like they're saying that there's something wrong with the way that you, you uh, think or the way that you have, mm. uh, like, you know, your ability as a director or writer or filmmaker or whatever it is. Um, so I think if you can get past that and just, you know, which is easier said than done, um, <laughs> and just, you know, accept, you know, the, the critique as it is, um, as, as, as meant to be constructive and not, you know, critique in itself, um, then I guess that's the only way you can mm. progress, I guess. <laughs> I think, I think Gone to Sea is an interesting practical example of that, because like you said, originally, the plan was just to interview people over the phone or through voice messages to not breach COVID. And now it's a significantly different thing because you're doing it in person and you're doing the walk. You know, you've done this walk from, you say, Salisbury? Yeah. Yeah, up to Scotland, which is what, like 500 miles or something like that? But we, when we put it on Google Maps, it said 500 miles and, and that was like a straight line. It's probably a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, but I just yeah, so you walk 500 miles and then some no, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... We did yeah, so 
a very a very appropriate song. Yes. Um, but like it's it's an interesting example in practice because it's not just the interviews. Like as it is now, it's not just the interviews. It's also the walk and like getting there and meeting these people, and especially that chance encounter with uh, the professional swimmer who you ended up not talking to. Things like that wouldn't have occurred if it were all over the phone. Mm. Yeah. So it's a different thing now because of its own making, which is a strange concept to consider. I think definitely. Um, to circumvent any kind of expectations of this film it's definitely not a, an adventure film um and i've been when we were talking about um you know answering those questions about like am i the right person to be telling the story and um who, like who who's being represented or like whose voice is being represented for this particular project i have kind of have outlined um like the genesis of like everything that happened and explains the parameters of like why these all these stories are interconnected but i have not filmed myself walking and or inserted myself into this narrative um and that for me was kind of vital in terms of like making sure that it wasn't you know the narrative wasn't being hijacked by like middle class like white girls like finding herself um on, on like a on a journey it's I wanted it to be really um making sure it was focusing on the people and the experience of the experiences of those um that were encountered because ultimately that I I saw elements of this man in each of those people so that was kind of like the yeah that's sort of why it's become what it is I think in asking that question, though, of am I the right person to tell this, I think the answer is more often no than it is yes. Yeah. Just because of how things work and the difficulty of get, well, not only the difficulty of getting own voices, but to tell their own story. But it's like, no, I'm not the right person to tell it, but I'm a person who is telling it. Mm. Mm. Definitely. I think um, at the time, I remember maybe like the last conversation that we had with him and he had actually asked me to write his story. Um, And then I explained to him like, I don't write and it would be a really bad story if I tried to write it, but I do make films. And then the next day, uh, this man disappeared. So there was kind of like a really small conversation where it was discussed that we would work together and in, in sharing his story because he wanted that to happen. Um, yeah. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that I should have taken it and run, but I, I think sometimes when there's a call to action, I feel like you know if you've got the resources and the time, then then why not? So. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think we'll see how this goes. It's still in um, post-production at the moment, so um, got quite a few bits and pieces to sort out before it is a, a finished relic. Um, mm. <laughs> and hopefully it'll be something th- worth watching. Yeah, do you think that the post-production will change it significantly in like its identity? I don't know. I just Because I've heard far- you hear far too many stories about how 
and I suppose maybe this is more so to do with narrative films, but this is kind of got a narrative running through it, uh, you know, where so much of it gets left on the cutting room floor. And, you know, like the finished product is wildly different from what the original director wanted or, you know, things like that. I don't know how that um, works in terms of documentary stuff where you have a, like a specific set of things to do. But then also, as you mentioned, uh, collaborators might say, you know, oh, you could cut out a whole five minute segment of this person. So I don't know how that would turn out. Mm. I think um, it's funny. I was watching um, an interview with the director of Jane the other day, and he was sort of discussing this idea. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a, a documentary about Jane Goodall, which is like mostly archive driven on Netflix. And it is, it's one of my favorite yeah, documentaries, but it's, it's really, really beautiful. Um, and he said, that he thinks it's wrong to assume that you know the entire documentary and the entire story is created in the edit um but that is that that is the case for like a lot of uh a lot of films and in this particular circumstance um <clears throat> i d it's i'm oh, sorry <laughs> oh, i'm just gonna have a drink <laughs> one second yeah fire ahead um in this particular circumstance, um, I've met so many people that I've had to inevitably cut some stories out um, because I I think with my initial idea, it might have made sense to have had 20-something anecdotes that were like one or two lines each about experiences to do with mental health. Um, but because of the way things have developed, I now want to be able to tease out some of those stories a lot more than um, than I did previously. You know, the more, I, yeah. and you probably know this from podcasts, it's like the, the more layers you like take off, the more you realize there are. And it's like, you want to be able to give that story um, a little bit more time and, and um, space on, on the timeline. So there's, I think probably about six core stories that have really stood out to me um, that I'm trying to gradually tease out. And you have to give, yeah, I, I think it's better to have more coverage um, than you need that you can then kind of cut down in the edit um, because ultimately you can't, yeah. you know, you can't make something out of thin air and it's, it's always better to have like, more options than it is to have less. Um, well, I, I, yeah. that's my way of thinking anyway. Um, and I was just saying with some of my stories, um, I originally just thought, oh, maybe like a couple of sentences of each, but then actually going through all the, the rushes, there's, you know, segments of like four minutes where this person is, is really opening up and um, you really get to see like the kind of, background that they went through or the experiences that their yeah. um you know their son or something went through and um I think in terms of like really building a character arc for each of those people you, you kind of have to uh, inevitably cut other stories out in order to make room for those other ones so, so yeah 
So it's very much a, a balancing act then, is it? Yes, with the with editing. Um, mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and again, I think it is really different from a case-to-case basis with different projects. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of... Uh, it's you know flexibility and being able to like recreate a story in in the edit but mm, it can also absolutely. be quite um quite scary because ultimately you have so like an infinite number of possible outcomes um but yeah you just kind of have to start with it bit by bit um and tra- transcribing mm-hmm. helps a huge amount with um figuring out which are the most important sections to to include um, and that that can really help uh, lead a lead look if you wanted to also then write a script alongside that um, you can you know script and edit after you've shot everything and Mm. that can also help in terms of um, progressing the the project absolutely Um, just in terms of you mentioned um, Jane being one of your favorite documentaries I, I just wanted to ask this is a film I really like uh, it's a another one of those like docudrama ones have you seen the film American Animals no I haven't ah it's this film uh it's this basically like documentary film it's a 2018 one directed by uh, a guy called Bart Layton and it stars um Barry Keoghan and Evan Peters in it but it's based off of this real heist that happened in 2004 where these four college students attempted to steal this really like valuable book of old um, paintings of birds by Audubon. And one of the things they did was they attempted to steal it while dressed up as old men. But <laughs> this film, this film's whole marketing was like, um, Oh, yeah, so their reasoning was that if they dressed up like old men, old people are invisible and they could go under the radar. <laughs> That's the reasoning for that one. But the marketing for this was like, this isn't, uh, like, it would come up in the trailer like, this is uh, this is based on a true story, and then it would get rid of based on, and it, like, this is a true story. Uh, kind of like how the old man with uh, the gun with Robert Redford was marketed, but this one, they have the actual guys who were in prison for the attempted heist uh, talking like after the fact and like the the person the librarian caretaker that they ended up like basically um, having to subdue um, when she tried to raise the alarm like interviewing all of them and then they dramatize that but it's really like it's one of the few ones I've seen where they take into account like how the unreliable narrator works in terms of memory because there's certain situations where it's like two people remember it differently and it shows both of them and then they like come to an agreement on what kind of is the accepted one or like where one person has done a part of this on their own and has just told the other people and they go well we don't actually know whether this happened or not but like we got to um choose to believe that it happened it's really interesting how it works i'd recommend it that sounds like a really great documentary it sort of i mean it kind of reminded me of the the one i spoke about earlier in terms of um people being held accountable for an incorrect uh testimony but um 
Yeah, I don't know. So, were the you said it was dramatized over the top, so it's all um, like yeah. So it's it's their recollections of the because the film came out in 2018, so it was like from 14 years previous mm. how they remembered it, and then that was dramatized with actors to show how it would have uh, played out. Yeah, that's really nice. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite films ever. So uh, I feel like this is the one of the only <laughs> points where I get to talk about it. <laughs> why is it? Why is it one of your favorite films? Uh, just the way that it's constructed. I really like the unreliable narrator parts, but also it's it's extremely well acted, um, and it's not. It's not like it's not got that good a critical rating on like reviewing websites, but it was premiered at like Sundance and a bunch of other like film and documentary festivals and stuff and it was like pretty much universally well um received at those mm. and i really enjoy it um <laughs> and it's also like the first thing i saw barry keoghan in which uh he's quickly become one of my favorite actors so <laughs> nice i think um i guess projects like that are more likely to have been not constructed in the edit but um like if we were to think about the process for that particular um film they'd probably you know they would have started with those those testimonies and those conversations between you say the librarian and then the, the people who were doing the heist is that right yeah and then i it never officially credits them so i don't know whether they're actually the parents of the um guys who committed the heist okay or well attempted the heist yeah, because they kind of look like the actors that they got in, so it might be, it or you know. Yeah, I've I've watched a few documentaries that that do that. So um, there was one that I think it was my tutor that actually directed it, but um, because of the nature of the the stories that were being shared, um, they essentially collected all these um like anecdotal stories um and experiences from there were women who were um students and it was about um i think it was about uh students that were working in the sex industry but they were oh, and obviously it had to be relatively anon anonymous because um like some of them were medical yeah. students for instance and so if they'd been you know, public, publicly talking about their other job, then they would have been sacked from their other one. Um, but mm. yeah, I think it's quite common, and that was it was it was another aspect that I considered for a few of my stories where um, people didn't want to necessarily share their story, but then it could have been a potential avenue to you can still be able you know you can still share someone's experience, but you can do it quite indirectly through anonymous. Um, like actors who sit in place of that other person so there's definitely a lot of flexibility flexibility working with um actors in that that kind of uh, context um and it means that you can ultimately share a story that otherwise wouldn't have been shared um i don't know yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you think there's necessarily more of a value between one or the other like do you think it's more important to just get the person telling their own story in whatever way possible? Or do you think, like, did, obviously, 
I don't want this to sound like a very cruel, cold, analytical way of looking at things, but in terms of like showing people's experiences so other people can empathize with them, is there necessarily uh, like a better way to do those out of those two <clears throat> out of those two ways? I think any filmmaker would obviously I mean I in an ideal world you would want the contributor to to share their experience in front of the yeah. camera but sometimes and I have to catch myself doing this because sometimes like I think I put expectations on people that I actually wouldn't necessarily do myself like there are there are experiences that I've been through that I necessarily wouldn't necessarily share directly you know in, mm. in front of a lens myself so um I think there's value in both I think in the like in this particular documentary with um the the female students who are also working in the sex industry it is I th it was a really not necessarily groundbreaking but I think it was important to to know those stories because they were ultimately saying that they couldn't have finished their degrees without that extra income and that was the the conflict that they were sort of found themselves in and something that yeah. I think if they hadn't have participated in you know having that you know their story shared through another actress I think th then you're kind of um what's the word I'm looking for you know if those stories aren't shared then ultimately change can't then be implemented I think that's so for me I, I'd see value in like both those um, ways of storytelling um, just because one might work better for one audience doesn't mean it isn't going to work for another um, yeah yeah that so I suppose it, <laughs> yeah I suppose it, it, it comes back to then ethical quandaries mm. in documentary making yeah definitely mm. uh, something that I maybe spend too much time thinking about <laughs> Um, but I think in order to be a responsible, um, storyteller, you have to, you know, kind of take in all these considerations, um, just because there, there's always an implication with everything that you put out. So. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any more questions at all. <laughs> uh, I can think of. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's uh, I feel like that's a good place to wrap it up. Unless you've anything else you want to talk about? Um, I'm not too. Uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, thank you, um, Julia. Where can we find you um, on social media? Is there anything you want to plug or anything like that? Um, yeah, my website is juliafrankie.com, and I. Also, I'm on Instagram every <laughs> once in a blue moon um, under Frankie mm -hmm. underscore films as well. If anyone's interested in mm. working together on something. But yeah. Uh, and where can people find Gone to See? Or like, it's obviously in the um, post-production stage, but where can people find it or information about it maybe for when it comes out? Um, it's 
currently we have a website for it which is www.gontosee.co.uk um we do have an instagram attached to that as well which is gone to see a film and we are on facebook although i haven't um shared anything on there for a while so um but once you know post-production's out the way and we start to have a few more things going on it'll be a little bit more local but yeah you can find a little bit more information about uh the project uh some of the stories we've already shared little teasers on um there's also ways to donate to some of the charities that we were fundraising for on the walk and yeah you can get in touch if you know of a venue that might want to screen it um yeah all sorts absolutely very cool um nigel where can we find you uh you can mainly find me on twitter at spicy nigel where recently i've been tweeting just like how shit it is to live in ireland uh in the current state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, pretty much. Like, it's great being Irish, but it sure is bad living in Ireland. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> That's it, the, really. The, const- the constant struggle. <laughs> yeah, the constant struggle of our government uh, just fucking us over at every every opportunity. <laughs> mm. yeah. I think they're like the um, same most places. The UK is not much better. Yeah, our government has recently introduced minimum unit pricing on alcohol. Oh. So, yeah, so, like, things have just gotten massively up, which is a problem in and of itself in regards addiction, but then also just, like, how are we expected to just buy this? Because now it's, like, 40 euro for a slab of cans. What? That's crazy. We at Hyperfixation do not support minimum unit pricing. Uh, No. (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah, the, like is. your <laughs> your government just has to worry about what, like whether it threw a party or not, and we're just like, <laughs> <you're> <laughs> dying. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, disaster. Yeah, uh, where can we find you, Ali? You can find me on Twitter at alicat underscore Ali spelled like alleyway, cat spelled with a K. And you can find me on Instagram at Ali, A-L-L-Y underscore K underscore Keegan. You can find the podcast at Hyperfixations P on Twitter. Or at Hyperfixations Pod on Instagram. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, be it at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or in a cave by the sea, wherever. <laughs> uh, if you would like to come onto the show to discuss one of your hyperfixations, please feel free to reach out at any of the aforementioned social media. And that is all for this week, Julia. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being on. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Signing off.